0: Me. I will
1: wait. is she hot because she is as a bad idea <clears throat> all
2: right welcome to the hammer factor this is episode this is episode 25
1: and, uh, I'm done, by the way. I've, I've, got, I've gone through all my material already. <laughs> the day yeah, seriously. Is. You guys want to talk about the party wraps
0: some more?
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's
1: all I have left.
2: <laughs> got a great show lined up for you. On the horn, we have policy director for the Outdoor Alliance, North Fork Champion, and Poker Maverick. Uh, welcome back to the show, Lewis Geltman. Hi, Johns. <laughs> Also mm. on the horn, sitting in a recliner, ch- a leather, like a smoke chair or something. That's
0: right. <laughs> oh, Smokey jacket. I was thinking jacket. more
3: like a like psychiatrist couch. We were <laughs> going to get like <laughs> the <laughs> inner monologue of John Weld today.
2: Uh-huh. Owner, co-owner of Immersion Research, Whitewater legend, John Weld. Welcome to the show, John. Hello. Hello. We got a good show lined up, I think, if we can keep it together. <laughs> Lewis, you want to start us off?
3: Sure, man. Um, I am how big working on race? this. Like,
2: what's that? Like, how big was your raise when you got a raise? Like twenty percent, thirty percent. What's a director get? It's double
1: paid? digits, single digits, or double digit raise?
3: Still in the works. We should. Uh, I'll be sure to share this comment with Kramer.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you want to get involved? <laughs> I went. Uh, I went paddling with a lawyer.
3: Maybe this once IR starts writing the big. Uh, the big supporter jacks will be there. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry.
2: Anyway, uh on to uh outdoor alliance.
3: Yeah, man. Um so I'm a, I'm writing this uh this white paper right now. I thought I I'd, I'd spin out my theory for you guys and see what you think. Is this
1: This sounds vaguely
3: racist. <laughs> <laughs> It's only because you're existing in that West Virginia milieu, well, that that strikes you that way.
1: I don't know. I just, it just
3: a little alarm went off when you said that. But go ahead. I'll entertain this for the for a little bit at least. So you know, you know how we've been working for a long time now about this, uh, like, kind of fighting this this state takeover idea. This idea of turning oh, yeah. over the public lands to the states, since, you know, it's still a big threat. But I think that. You know we've had some we like stopped a lot of things over the last couple of years, and I think that there's kind of this sense in the broader community that in a lot of ways this you know maybe this isn't real or maybe we've like we've beat this thing back and we can you know kind of let our guard down a little bit and you know it's not really it's not really accurate, I think that we've had some good wins, but I guess the way I'm kind of spinning this thing out is you know, thinking about what public lands are, like what makes public lands public lands, you know, the first thing is that they're publicly owned and there's this like public right of access that exists on national forests and BLM lands and places like that. But, you know, when we think about what are public lands is sort of in the common phrasing, it's like you don't really, it's not necessarily just federal lands. It's like you think about, you know, it's like the places that you're free to go basically, right? And so it's sort of like this public ownership, but it's also, you know, public process to protect those places. Things like NEPA, which is the law that requires, like, an environmental impact statement for big federal actions. Things like, you know, forest planning. And then, you know, tools like the Wilderness Act and the Antiquities Act to protect kind of the most important places and, you know, management based on science. And then it's also like proper funding for the land management agencies. So, you know, these agencies that we've charged with stewarding public lands have the resources they need to do a good job. And so, you know, for the last however many years, there's been this big concerted attack on sort of the first attribute, right? This, you know, the idea of public ownership and they want to kind of take that away as a means of, you know, ratcheting up resource extraction kind of development activities. And you know we've had this kind of good run of wins, you know, fighting back some of the worst state bills. Uh, you know, Jason Chaffetz had that big sell-off bill that he had introduced this Congress that everybody got up at arms about, and he pulled back on. Um, Mark Amaday, who's a congressman from Nevada, had a bill in the last Congress to force the sell-off of a bunch of public land in Nevada, and he said that he wasn't going to reintroduce it because he recognized that it's really unpopular. Um, But, you know, these same people who are really just trying to find ways to sort of circumvent environmental protections, you know, the laws that kind of ensure protection for recreation access they've kind of moved on to attacking sort of these other attributes of public land. So maybe we'll keep it in public ownership, but we'll move on to, you know, attacking NEPA, attacking funding for the land management agencies, which is in a lot of ways the quickest way to, you know, diminish people's enthusiasm for public lands is by making sure that the agencies that protect those places don't have the resources to do a good job, right? So You know, we're seeing this threat to sort of evolve, I think, from this like really overt, you know, we're just going to take away the public lands kind of deal to sort of these more oblique attacks and kind of other attributes of, of public lands.
1: Well, sure. It's like abortion. If you can't fight abortion, let's go ahead and make, let's make it so doctors, you know, have to have to do, have ridiculous requirements in order to offer these things, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's just fight a, every
3: peripheral
1: uh, aspect to the to the issue at hand.
3: Yeah, I think that's a reasonable analogy, but I think you know, in a way, this whole state takeover thing has been sort of a blessing because it just makes the issue so easy to understand. Right? It's like if they'd come out of the gates talking about, you know, we're going to just hand over some, you know, control over the national forest to to you know, local county commissions or to the states, like people would just sort of maybe shrug their shoulders and say, oh, you know, that kind of makes sense, having the people who live there manage the public lands. But these guys have already like tipped their hand, right, by asking for the whole thing right out of the bat, you know, right out of the gate. It's like they've showed what their agenda is, which is really, you know, tipping the scales towards extractive industry, towards development, towards privatization. And so it's sort of like we know what we're up against now. And I think we're just thinking a lot about how to, you know, kind of continue framing this issue in a way that is, you know, very understandable for people. So I don't know.
0: It's just kind of what I'm
3: working on right now.
2: On this white paper, this – I don't know. I always think of white papers as like a thought leadership paper or whatever. Is this directed at the normal citizen? Is this like at – Outdoor ab- advocacy groups. Who are you? Who's intended to 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 learn something from this paper? We'll see. I mean, I think we're going to write it sort of like
3: internally, and it's going to kind of would form the basis for a lot of our communication stuff, and just sort of thinking about how we're going to frame issues. But you know, I think it'll probably live. It'll probably be public somewhere at some point, or at least I'll write something more accessible based on it. God, Lucy, huh.
2: you do such more important stuff than I do on a daily basis. <laughs> Yeah, that can't that can't possibly be true, man.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, anyway. That's what I'm up to. Yeah, dude, good on you. That's buying it. I am buying it and I think it's like something that needs to be talked about. People at the land
3: management agencies, like they're reasonable people. Like they wanna do a good job. They wanna kinda of balance these competing interests. It's a hard job, you know, to you know, keep all these different kind of constituencies happy with public land management and i think the agencies do a good job of it for the most part i mean we certainly have plenty of things to argue with them about but i don't ever feel like they're uh you know acting in bad faith or anything like that it's just it's a hard job
2: outdoor so i gave
3: 50
1: i gave 50 bucks to outdoor alliance this week right and to be honest i probably never would have thought about it until now and i feel like Things are in you know in, in jeopardy, and so I feel that I feel that way about a lot of things right now. And so you like well, you know I know I can give money because I know ultimately money talks. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, Thanks, John. And so I just it's so the question is is like I know there's a bunch of people out there, but I think we all feel sort of inundated by. <clears throat> You know, I mean, there's a thousand things we need to support. Like, how does Outdoor Alliance rise to the top of that or the top five, you know?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a question that everybody has to answer for themselves. But I think that we are sort of the preeminent organization in terms of representing human-powered outdoor recreation on public lands. So, you know, if you're not, if you don't want to give money to Outdoor Alliance, I think giving money still to, you know, American Whitewater or, you know, IMBA if you're a mountain biker or Access Fund if you're a climber, American Alpine Club, you know, just supporting the organizations kind of in our constellation that are, you know, working on public lands with our perspective in mind, I think is, I think it's worthwhile. <laughs> I feel, so basically, you know, of the work we do. I think we do a good job.
1: If you're listening to this podcast, basically you should move one of those things up to your top of your list right now. Because we're assuming you spend hours a week, every week of your life, yes. involved
2: with something in the outdoors. Yes, I agree with that. All right. Okay. Outdooralliance.org. Sign up for the newsletter. And uh, thanks again, Lewis. Thank you. <laughs> All,
1: right. All right. That was, it was nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be, I <laughs> have <not> to
3: admit. Me <laughs> neither. I heard... I,
1: I heard white paper, and I was going off in a different
2: direction. I guess,
3: but
1: okay, it was good.
2: Uh, should we move to our celebrity guest, or should we touch? You want to touch on this Alex and Ald thing again that I was bringing up earlier? While I sure, while, while I see, so you have
1: the coo- you have a half baked theory that you're discussing before the show started. Let's let's get it out.
3: It. your white paper also. It is. <laughs> The Jews are very crafty. (laughs) (laughs) So Uh, don't bar over here.
2: (laughs) So along, you know, I've been, you know, the mountaineering world has always, you know, not just kayaking, but everything mountaineering, kind of mountain sports, has always, always sort of intrigued me. And some of the things that inspired a long time ago. For us to talk about a speed run on the sticking or this and that were other adventures and things that were happening in the climbing world. And so I, Alex, you know, laces up his shoes, climbs El Cap, no ropes, no nothing, just climbs on up there. And I'm thinking, all right, well, what in kayaking is going to be analogous to this? So what, what's the, what is the level that puts on? And I was like, well, I guess we got to start ditching our life jackets. So I kind of threw that out there and you guys were like, no, that's dumb. You know, whatever. But we poo-pooed it. You poo-pooed it right away. <laughs> so,
1: hey, Lewis, do you want to start or should I start? I,
3: <laughs> I, I just feel like in a lot of ways running really hard class five, like you're already there. You know, I mean, that was always kind of the feeling I had during high water, little white runs is like, the, I was like, this is what it feels like to climb without a rope because like you're in it and there's no stopping. And if you fuck it up, you're going to die. And like. I don't know. I don't. I guess I just don't feel the need to. I also feel like wearing a life jacket doesn't sort of interfere with your aesthetic experience in the same way that you know wrangling ropes does when you're climbing. I don't know.
1: I mean, I I think what Alex is doing is an extension, like a very you know far out extension, but an extension of the what you know the alpine style. The idea of going from Hillary, who had you know Sherpas and cases of champagne, and you know. thousand people climbing a mountain to you know, uh to shipton tillman you know eric shipton and bill tillman who were developed this idea of climbing a mountain with just a couple people and a minimal amount of equipment you can do the same thing in a quarter of the you know a, a 50th of the budget with you know two people and a minimal amount of gear and go super light i think alex is expanding on that so uh, i think what lewis is saying is true and i think if you're doing like if you're doing middle kings in a day you're there that's it it's a long trip that normally takes people five days. You're doing it in a day. Just like, you know, Hanold was doing this thing that normally takes people what two, two, three days to do. He's doing it in three hours. Right? Uh, and you're hanging it out there. You know what I mean? If something goes really wrong on on a Middle Kings trip, you could easily die.
3: You know? Oh yeah. Mm. No? I don't know. I mean to me it's how about this
1: like... How about how about a day running this to I mean, I think it's like
3: or more like you know, like high water North Fork or something like that, where it's just so continuous and so big that if you know that if you come out of your road, you're going to die. It's like that. And it's just having the sort of like presence of mind to operate in that environment where the moves that you're making might be within your comfort zone. But you know, that they're just, it's just so stacked up that, you know, if you make a mistake, it's over. Like, I think that's, I, that's,
1: I, I, that's a weird thing about kayaking, you know, you, you go skiing, like, you know, you go even like really tough, you know, out of bounds resort ski. you know, from a resort type skiing is, you know, it could be scary and difficult. It's never quite like kayaking where when you peel out at the top of a class five, you really don't have any recourse, but to finish what you started, there's no stopping mm-hmm. and sitting down. You know what I mean? You're going. I mean, I think the guys you know? who
3: are really at the top of the sport, that's the case. Yeah, you know, people who are yeah, really, but ka- really, really you, you hit that point of kayak.
1: But you hit that point of kayaking a lot sooner in the in the chain.
3: You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it seems
1: like the top twenty five percent of the sport of kayaking it, it encounters something like that sooner or later. You know, where the top one percent of uh, of skiing achieves that. You know.
2: I hear yeah. you. I guess my thoughts were. The rope is your kind of last level of safety. Um, it could fail. Your anchors could fail. Things could go wrong even with a rope. And it seems like a PFD is your kind of last layer of safety if things go wrong out on the river. So that was where my thought came from.
0: I
1: don't know. Under a lot of circumstances, I think when people drown, a life jacket doesn't, wouldn't, help them, wouldn't have helped them one bit. You know, having one or not helping having one.
3: I feel like I John Trujillo even, and uh, John Trujillo praised, and Jason right. Beeks. Those guys used to be real good. Uh, no life jacket wears. <laughs>
0: <Back laughs> there was always a
3: handful of people who would go run class five with no life jackets. Well, I definitely remember seeing like Beeks out on Great Falls from time to time with no life jacket on when it was really hot out. Or you guys weren't allowed to wear, actually, I wear I remember life jackets. Being Scotty Parsons one day going to go run the Maryland side of Great Falls at about three six and slalom boats. So we got there, and God, he had forgotten his life jacket. And I was like, oh, it's just we're good. We can go home." And he's like, "No, nah, man, it's fine." <laughs> it's
1: not there. Sure, but you know, it was also probably a rapid style life jacket that was not Coast Guard approved It had a half a pound of flotation in it, right?
0: Yeah. Even some of that yeah. was
1: removed, you know, to yeah. pass the, the very minimal flow requirements for an IFC
3: <laughs> race. Yeah. Maryland side at three six in an eighteen pound sloth boat and no life jacket. Valley Mill
1: <laughs> or, a, or Great Falls at three six in an eighteen pound sloth boat and a, and a Charlie
2: Walbridge high float. <laughs> okay, all right. Let me snap you out so. of there. Bring you back from <laughs> the glory days, here, guys. All right. So, all right. speaking of big undertakings, um, just recently the twenty four hour speed record uh, was reset. Was broken. Um, by a group of whitewater paddlers, and one of those paddlers, Todd Wells, were getting ready to. Have what is him this? On the wait, show.
1: wait. What is this? Back up. What are you talking about?
3: Well, let's let there like, is. So there is a twenty-four hour distance record for like kayaking, and like it's flat water, sheer to any
2: kind, any kind it's of water, anywhere. as and fast it's, as you can go. Human power. twenty-four hours.
3: It's been like set and broken by guys paddling surf skis on the Yukon where it's just like ripping fast. Right. Um, like, I think Andy Cora had it for a minute. There's a guy, uh, Carter, whose last name I can't remember who was down in uh, the Bay, who I think maybe had it at one point. But anyway. Right. anyway. Todd. Hey there. What's all, bud?
2: How are we doing? Yep. All right, Todd. <laughs> welcome to the hammer, fa- hammer Factor.
4: Man, this is a pleasure to be here, guys. So <laughs> where are you at? I am uh sitting in Crouch, Idaho right now at the lovely public library
3: here. <laughs> nice. Very good. <laughs> it's a good spot. So
1: where do you break the speed record? Like where is that broken? Like what's the
2: Did we wait, wait, wait. Before we get into All Todd's right. trip, did we explain what the speed record to our viewers is? What,
0: what i understand it Do you is add- it
1: like has it always been like have people been i don't know for some reason i know nothing about this i don't know why but i've i've even heard of this such a thing todd
2: can yeah. you fill us in here on 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 what the speed record is the totally so the,
4: the speed record um you know is the longest distance paddled in 24 hours on flowing water and um previously you know the Previous few records have all been set on the UK- Yukon River up in, uh, uh, in Canada. So um, to set it down here on the Salmon River on a more, you know, whitewater heavy river was kind of a, a unique experience. Because previously it's just been done in these, these long surf skis or like those, you know, you see the epic kayaks around quite often. So um, boats like that is typically what this, this record has been set in up there on the Yukon.
2: And so you and a group of guys took this challenge on in Idaho. Who, who all were you with? Um, let, let's kind of set the scene. Who, who all was on the team?
4: Yeah, so um, we, we kind of put this, this trip together last minute. You know, a lot of us had dreamed about this 24-hour distance record for a while, and we all kind of knew that it could be possible out there on the, the stems of the Salmon River. Um, but it wasn't until the Big Fork uh, White a couple of weeks ago where Tyler kind of was mentioning that maybe the peak and that this is the time to do it. It's you know going to be the biggest peak in flows in about 10 years and it's going to be like, you know, the the opportunity to break this record if, if we want to do it. So, um I was very interested. I was with Isaac Levinson and he was interested and uh of course we needed some kayaks that we only had creek boats on our trip over there to to Montana, so we called my brother and him and Annie Ole came out to join us, and um, yeah, we kind of put together this plan pretty last minute, just within a couple of days to to meet in Stanley and start on this 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 wild trip.
2: And so, where did you uh, where did you start, and where did you end? And, and what all rivers did you paddle?
4: And what yes. boats were you in? So yeah, we were just in in. Um, Kind of typical long boats. Uh, My brother and I were in Dagger Green boats, and Annie Ole and Tyler were in Karma Unlimiteds. So it was kind of cool to be breaking this record in boats that are like half the length of you know what it was set in. Um, Could you
1: paddle a faster boat? Like, what kind of whitewater was there?
4: You know, there's some substantial whitewater out there for sure. Um, Lewis, I I think you've paddled the Middle Fork at pretty high flows, and it's um, or maybe not. not, Anyways, the middle fork and the main salmon has some, some good whitewater. So does Marsh Creek at the very top. Um, and the whole time down, I was thinking, like, man, maybe if you had, like, a sweet carbon sea kayak, you could, you could move a little faster. But there's definitely some serious whitewater. And uh, having— Like, what's, what's the hardest
1: rapid out there on class what?
4: Uh, so Dagger Falls is a solid class 5 uh, rapid. And um, it's it's a substantial uh, drop for sure. I feel uh, pretty good
1: about running that in a carbon sea kayak. I think dagger. <laughs> I probably want a rudder on there or something. You know, it helps steer. <laughs> <laughs> a skag, maybe. Yeah, totally. Maybe that's the ticket for uh, for the 300 mile push. But could uh, you could you car- I mean, are you allowed to get out and carry around a rapid? Is that or you can't do that?
4: Um, you know. I think in the previous record attempts like it hadn't no one had ever done that before I think the people had you know hopped out of their kayaks to rest for a little bit um and 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 take a break but uh we did Tyler did portage dagger falls actually um so you know three of us stayed in our boats the whole time but Tyler decided to portage around it um kind of last minute made that decision so um yeah. We'll, we'll see. We're still working on the application process right now with Guinness, but I don't
2: know. So you went from Marsh Creek into the Middle Fork into the main?
4: Exactly. Yep. Okay. Um, and we almost, you know, we got, I think within 10 or 15 miles of, of completing the whole uh, lower main salmon and, and getting into the Snake River um, before we hit that 24 hour period. And it was nice that we we uh we kind of hit that point uh before we got to the snake because there's one last big rapid called slide on the uh, lower salmon and uh we portaged that after after the distance you know uh record that we did um and and it's a stout rapid it's huge we all like Maybe would have ran up here in creek boats, but in big long boats, it was like, I don't want anything to do with this thing, especially after having just paddled for 24 hours.
1: So what time did you start? Like, how did you time it? Did you start like in the evening or did you start in the morning or?
4: So we started at eight o'clock in the morning and, um, we kind of decided upon that because we wanted light for the top on Marsh Creek. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also wanted it to start getting light for the lower bit of the main cause there's some big boily uh, rapids in there that we wanted to have a little bit of light for so um, that was kind of why we started to decided to start at eight and it worked out really well for us actually we had you know uh, light where we needed it and the dark bits were a little scary and a little bit wild for sure but um, luckily it was in pretty pretty flat water
2: did, you, so did how- you guys put any lights on your boats or could you see each other at night or how did you know how, that you guys yeah. were all good
4: Totally. So, um, the, uh, the one break that we took was at about ten thirty PM. So this is, you know, 14 and a half hour or no, how long would that be? Uh, yeah, 14 and a half hours into the trip. And we were right after the confluence of the South fork of the salmon and we pulled over and as quick as we could, we pulled our boat up on the shore. There's no beaches like there usually is in the salmon. It's just like up onto the grassy hillsides. And uh, we duct taped some glow sticks to our headlamps and um, to our kayak. <laughs> and that was actually a really, really helpful way to be able to see one another when we're going through these rapids. Uh, we also uh, uh, duct taped on lamps so we could shine the, turn those on if we needed. And in the end, we really didn't use the headlamps much at all. They kind of just threw, threw us off more than anything. So, um, you know, the the main thing was just following these green and red glow sticks down the river, um, following one another. And we had moonlight for a little bit. So after the sun went down, we had, uh, you know, moon, a half moon about peeking, peeking through and, and shining the way for us. But around two o'clock, the moon set and it was dark for about three hours. And that was a really, uh, just testing, difficult, kind of psychedelic uh aspect of the
2: trip. <laughs> weird during the, those three hours dude i got i got a friend who's is a, a a big endurance athlete and he he's been like crossing arizona crossings and whatever and he came up to me one day and he was like i was doing some some endurance things and whatever he's like dude if you really want to get into it, you've got to get into sleep deprivation, man. <laughs> That's how you really start tripping. So I guess you got a, you got a little bit of it.
4: <laughs> yeah, I believe it now after that experience. Like I was having some hallucinations that were pretty intense out there. <laughs> and, uh, In particular, Tyler brought, he had, you know, this like green glow stick taped on top of his he- on his helmet. And then he had this red glow stick on the back of his, his boat. And he was kind of like, looked like a serpent moving down the river. I, I was thinking, I just kept telling myself, you got to keep following that dragon. looked like a dragon. I always
1: <laughs> see monkeys when I get to that point. I don't know why, but it's always monkeys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: So, what kind of gear? What
1: kind of gear do you have in the boat? Like, how do you how how much do you hang it out? Do you bring no sleeping gear because you know you're you're committed, or do you bring something like a space blanket or what kind of food and water? How do you make that
4: work? Totally. Um, So, yeah, we did bring sleeping bags. Um, Each of each of us brought either a sleeping bag or a heavy down jacket, so that if there was you know an emergency in the middle of the night, or also if one person just was Really not feeling it, um, you know. We wouldn't want to hold one another back. So the idea was that you know if someone's really not feeling it and needs to pull over, they can pull over and camp out for the evening and um, let the other three folks continue on. So we had sleeping bags in the back of our boats, um, and then we had these lap bags, you know, just a, a, a watershed bag that was just packed full of, you know, probably twelve thousand calories of, of food. Uh, we had. You know, meat and cheese sandwiches, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, uh, different like, you know, trail mixes that we could dive into, Um, uh, granola bars, all that kind of good stuff. And, uh, yeah, we also all uh, rigged ourselves up with these camelbacks that we could just dip into the river um, as we're moving and uh, fill them up, put a couple tabs of chlorine there to, to purify them. And, uh, yeah, so it was just key to have everything really accessible there from the, the, you know, hydration, the electrolyte, uh, packets to the food, whatever you could have easily accessible, you know, ideally just in your life jacket, but if need be inside a a lap bag, that was kind of the the name of the game and and what worked out for us out there. So you got out at 10
1: o'clock and that was it just once or did you get out again?
4: We just got out that one time, you know, Tyler was out for another five minutes within the first hour and a half of the trip when, when he portaged Dagger Falls, um, but the rest of us were just in our boats the whole time, you know, just peeing out of our kayaks and, you know, filling up the hydration packs from from inside of our kayaks, just getting really comfortable inside those green boats and karmas that we were in.
2: So what were the yeah. stats? Did you uh, h- How many feet did you drop? What was your average miles per hour? Have you, have you calculated any of that?
4: Yeah, so we had a GPS device that was tracking our progress the whole uh, duration of the trip, and from the put-in at Marsh Creek where we started, down to uh the lower salmon where we finished it's just kind of a random spot on the lower salmon but we covered 287 and a half miles during that 24 hours um and what and was the previous record the previous record was 279 oh wow um, it was tight yeah yeah it was tight for sure like we you know we we were not far beyond what Carter Johnson set up on the Yukon.
1: Uh, were you at some point thinking you're not going to make it? Was that thought crossing your mind?
4: Were you pretty sure you were on track the whole time? Um, you know, the whole time we knew it was going to be tight. We didn't know if we'd make it or not. It was just like, it got to a point where it's just like, man, boys, we just got to get out there and see how far we can paddle in 24 hours. But, uh, yeah, we... Uh, one of the, uh, features of Tyler's GPS that he had was that it could give you your average miles per hour. And we knew that we had to be at 11.5 miles per hour on average to, um, to beat the previous record. So we were constantly kind of monitor monitoring that every hour, a couple hours we'd, we'd check in and see where we were at. Um, So that was a useful device. And at the beginning, I was worried that we were not going to make it. The first hour and a half on Marsh Creek is kind of slow. I mean, it feels fast because it's this steep, you know, pretty steep gradient and continuously moving stuff. But you're making these big bends in the river and uh, there's not nearly as much water up there on Marsh Creek. You're putting in about 500, 600 CFS probably and then it grows very quickly, but, you know, that first bit where you don't have a lot of flow pushing you downstream um, kept us from moving very fast, and I think we were averaging like 10 miles per hour up top there, so, you know, when those were the first stats that we saw, uh, we were like, okay, I think we need, to, we need to pick it up, or we need to keep moving, and, um, you know, I don't think we really picked up the pace, we just kind of maintained it, but the river definitely picked up speed, and
3: and uh, helped
4: us out there. So, yeah. Very cool.
3: Sick, man. How yeah. are your forearms doing?
4: Man, my forearms are not doing good, honestly. <laughs> uh,
3: Todd Todd showed me his forearms a couple of days ago, and it, it looks not healthy. <laughs> Did
1: you yeah. get, like, the twitching forearm at some point where your arms forearms start twitching uncontrollably?
4: Oh, man. No twitching forearms, but it, it makes me cringe just thinking back about it, though. But our <laughs> hands were just, like... I mean just saturated like so wet and gnarly, and these big blisters are are popping up all over our hands um, just to be have your body wet for twenty four hours you know has a pretty big toll and then add you know holding your paddle and pulling strokes for for the whole day it it, it definitely kind of burns you out so just the the Hands were, were a big thing by the end of the trip, and then I've never had, like, tendinitis before in my arms, and I'm having it right now, ever since, like, the end of that trip. And for the last week, it's been bugging me more than I've ever, you know, imagined could happen, and it really sucks. I mean, this is, like, definitely taking a toll on, on all of our bodies, um, mine especially. I think that I'm having more more trouble with my forearms, with the tendinitis in my forearms than, than anyone, but... Um, I guess that's kind of just,
2: you know, part of the part of the thing. So, well, way to bring it back to America, man. <laughs> <laughs> Take that, Canada. <laughs> yeah, you such <laughs> <laughs> a vicious communist. Uh, Mark
1: Johnson,
4: the guy, <laughs> set that record, and he's a badass man. He like he set this record um, on the Yukon, and he also, I think, holds the flatwater record. So. Um, you know, this guy is like a trained ultra kayaker dude. Like that's what he does. He, he gets in, you know, these long surf skis and does these 24 hour ultras, um, all over the world. There's these events and sometimes even longer. There's a, an event on the Yukon where you have to paddle 460 miles. So, I mean, this guy's <laughs> Damn. <to> stuff <laughs> like that. Whereas the rest of us are just like, you know, a bunch of whitewater kayak kind of. <laughs> came up with this idea of, like, well, let's give it a
2: shot. (laughs) We're
4: going to fall off a mountain and break this
2: record. (laughs) That's the whitewater spirit, man. You guys dropped more than a mile, didn't you?
4: Yeah, you know, I actually haven't looked at that exactly, man. But I think it's, like, right, very, very close to a mile, if not a full mile. So that's pretty unique, too, you know, to be able to do a vertical mile on one, you know, without, like, Getting out of your kayak is is pretty <laughs> sweet. I mean, how
1: many places in the country can you do that, really, honestly? Without have getting out, out of your boat? I don't know. I mean, Middle,
2: Middle Kings, maybe? Yeah, yeah but Middle you, Kings. How far do you, you go? Middle Kings?
4: A little bit, right
2: But you have to portage a little bit on the Middle Kings, you know? Like, there's definitely yeah. some places where the water goes under rocks, you know? Yeah.
3: So, dude, uh, you're over at Crouch now. Give us the uh, give us the Northfork preview.
2: Yeah, what's going on over there? Lots what are we, look, over what there. are we looking at next
3: weekend?
2: Yeah.
4: Hitters right now. We got uh, Galen Volkov <laughs> and uh, William Griffith. So, some heavy hitters for sure. <laughs> so, right, guys I'm seeing Jake's laps right now? <laughs> yeah, well, that's to happen soon here. Um, hopefully, it's looking rowdy though. It's like high five thousands.
2: 000- and the river is big and gnarly when it's flowing that much. So. Oh, it's so big. I can't it's wait, gnarly. I can't wait to see what happens this weekend, like what sections are erased and how it all goes down. Totally. Everyone's wondering,
4: you know, if it's going to go real big, if it's going to just stay, you know, this flow, even though this is, like, real big still. But <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> crazy. No one really knows if it's going to be, um, you know, 8,000 CFS or 3,000 CFS. It's kind of... Wait and see, I guess.
2: Killer man. Well, thanks for coming yeah. on the Hammer Factor, Todd. Yeah, dude, thanks, thanks so much. So much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah,
1: dude. I can't I believe I never did. heard of this twenty-four hour thing. Like I was supposed to get a memo or something about this, right? You Sounds
4: well, like it'd be right up your alley, Wells.
3: I know. I'm, lo- I'm loving this.
4: <laughs> yeah, the the be best thing be I've ever heard. If you get carbon sea kayak man, you know, some extra caffeine pills, I think you'd break that 300, 300 mile mark. <laughs> I guess that's the next barrier.
2: Yeah,
4: totally. Huh. Grand Canyon in a downriver
3: boat when they do a, one of those releases—that could
2: be—that could be it.
3: Downriver oh. boat. It'd have to be this really high. nowhere near as fast as the. It'd boat have to be so there. high. I think you guys. I think that's the right. Yeah, place. but there's well, white water the is slow.
1: Like hard white water is slow. You know, if you have a fast moving current in a DR boat, you're going to be a lot faster than a green boat on white water.
3: That's all there is yeah, to it. Now we know, man. People have tried the, the
2: fast flash. Exactly, fast dude. Just just freaking fire it up, man. It's done. Dude, congrats <laughs> to you guys. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Like, that was really cool. Good work, man. Yep.
4: Awesome. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah. Give yep, our best, player, everybody dude.
2: out there. Good luck this weekend.
4: Sounds good. You guys have a great day. <laughs> See
0: ya. <laughs> 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 See ya. <laughs> right,
4: right.
1: He's making friends in the library there. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. I love that
2: scene. I love turning around and like, I know that scene.
1: Grace, it, by the way, I'm serious about our little project we discussed the other day.
2: Okay. Well, I, I mean, I'd be the down. I,
1: I just, I don't had... want to, I don't want to release it yet. I don't want to talk. I don't want to say what we're talking about. I just want to do it, and then we'll get, when we get back, we can talk about it. I think that's the best way to get it done. I'd be all right. about it. I think it's. Uh... I looked at the map. I think it's it's definitely doable. I didn't look to see anyone was done, it, I'm sure they have, but.
2: Ah oh, man, I went kayaking this weekend. I think I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. I did too.
1: Speaking of which, I paddled the Granada. Can I talk about the Granada?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before we move on, let's hear about the Granada.
1: All right. So Letman Granada. Letman Letman is like what, Lewis? Is I mean one of the the you know, the icons. I mean you're talking old school, old school patriarchs of the sport. Letman, Creon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is there anyone else who's has a legacy like that in the industry? Multiple generations of boatbuilders?
2: No. No. Mm.
1: Anyway, the company's currently <laughs> being run by Jokin Letman, who I think is the son of the original Letman. My first boat was a Letman Mark V, by the way, which would have been late 70s. That was, was my blue. father's first boat, too. A <laughs> Letman Mark V? Yeah, there was a mold floating around the United States and people were pulling boats off it like crazy. But uh, anyway, Jokin Letman's running the company, makes this creek boat called the Granada. Right, so I, you can get them in the U.S. I'm not quite sure how though because we had one here locally at our store.
3: Darren, who's, the who's bringing him in? Supporting him now. Okay. Um, but
1: Jochen is a slalom boater, right? And he designed this creek boat. I think it was even I think, more like I, mean, I would say
3: slalom l- racers than him. Like I think it was like Fabian Dorfler and Tio Schmidt, maybe.
1: No, but yeah, yeah, no, I know he had collaborators on this, but he. You know, he, as a guy who runs a boat building company, he has a distinctive slalom background, you know. Um, and that's where his influences are clearly coming from. But anyway, if you want to paddle a boat that gets a lot of people asking, talking to you about your boat, you're paddling, paddle one of those. Because I got stopped about 10 times by people asking me what I thought of it. And what do you um, mean? What are they saying? They say, oh, is that the Letman?" I'm like, yeah. So, so, words out on this thing. People are interested in it. That's for sure. Well, what would you think? Uh, so, I was paddling the well, I was paddling a large one, which was eight six. Seemed like eight and a half feet. Um, and it was it
3: well Lewis, pad, Lewis you paddled you paddled this before as well, right? Yeah. So I, I paddled so when this book came out, I mean this thing's been out for probably like five years and you know, a bunch of guys had it at Wine. And I saw pictures of this boat, and I was like, "I got to have this thing! Like, this is the boat I've always wanted. It's like designed by slalom racers. It has like a slalom hull shape. Like, this is going to be the greatest boat ever! Like, how do I get it?" And and
1: you you get in the boat. I mean, the the minute you sit in the boat and start paddling it, you're struck by how slalomy it feels, and maybe not necessarily in a good way, but it's stuck on rails. You know what I mean? It has a very fast hull to it, like way faster feeling than a typical creek boat
3: yeah i I felt like i was like I, i can't wait to paddle this thing and i think maybe my expectations were like a little bit too high and i paddled the xl first and i paddled it and i was like this is cool but it just wasn't like magic like it was pretty easy but also a little bit like mushy I felt like the deck was a little bit like the cockpit room hit me like right at rib level in the XL, and I was sort of like, ah, like I could paddle this thing for sure, but I wasn't like I gotta have it right now. And then I've paddled the large also, which is just like a little bit too small for me. It's not a very big boat, but right? I think it's a little like sportier. But my reaction to this thing was it really like made me reconsider what I wanted in a kayak because for the longest time I thought what I really wanted was just like a slalom boat, like a slalom hull shape. And after I paddled this thing, I really helped me understand that, you know, so much of what makes a slalom boat, a slalom boat is having a low volume stern and not just to be able to do pivot turns, but to be able to do like really low pivot turns where you're really like driving the boat off the outside hip and that it just doesn't work in a high volume creek boat, and so like after I paddled this thing, it really made me think that maybe you do need really hard edges on a creek boat or on a high volume boat in a way that you don't need in you know a small boat a small boat. So you know, need to what keep now? The boat feeling really dynamic, like you need like a hard edge under the seat or something. Otherwise, the boat's just going to feel mushy because you can't drive it off the off the hip or like off the stern edge when there is no stern edge or. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, but what creek boat has an edge
3: to it? Uh, like the tuna or the mamba or you know any of those modern, modern boats that have that hard chine. I mean, I think that you can I mean, kind the, of like, I, th- th- I kind think of the Granada had a spot. reasonably
1: hard... It was a lot harder chine than like, uh, I don't know, the majority of the creek boats out there for sure, I felt like. Yeah, if, I mean, you know? it's
3: good. I, it's, not, it's not that I don't think it's a good boat. It's definitely like one of my top... Well here here's what I did. So I put in I
1: was I was this swapping wasn't. boats with uh Ian von Stoutmeister who works for us and I hopped in <laughs> at National Falls at uh on Avery did, did
2: he run Cucumber I peed, Falls?
1: Yeah, he was one of the guys yeah, running yeah, Cucumber. Yeah, 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 and yeah. so I I peeled <laughs> out and ran uh you know ran National quick and there's just a sort of an easy booth on the river right side of there. And you kind of locked in on the booth like 20 yards above the booth in that boat. You locked in on it. And usually, when you approach that booth, there's a, there's a couple of cross waves and stuff like that that you kind of have to fiddle with. There was none of that with this boat. I mean, you just started driving. And once you got within a couple inches of it, if you were a little off, you realized you were a little off like 20 feet ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? You were like locked into that thing. And then I don't think it's you go to do. At all.
3: I don't think it's It's that not.
1: It's not. I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, but when you get to do the boof, usually with like a kick, like a kicktail, you can do that lean back and sort of like that stern draw to get the nose lifting up. The Granada's not having any of that. I mean, you're going to do that boof not by lifting the stern up by but sheer German determination. You're going to drive <laughs> that boat into the eddy. That's the only way that's going to get in there, you know. And so that was, you know, I'm so used to being able to do like a last minute stern draw to pull the nose up even off a clean lip. That that's just boats not going to do it. But when you land, extremely stable.
3: That's one thing I noticed about it. Um,
1: I mean, it wasn't hard, it, but, I'm
3: but I'm surprised you got it to be that different. Like I didn't think it was that. I thought it was really different,
1: and I felt like it wasn't hard to turn because after I was only an eight and a half foot boat. But and especially if you could turn like off the top of a wave instead of like you know we, you know trying to turn where the nose is buried or using the currents to help you turn. You know, a paddle like that, and which is fine, but. I suddenly found myself missing sort of the the, you know, the cheater moves like you could get away with it in, a, in a more traditional creek boat. You know, I, I didn't think it was that hard. <laughs> I don't know. It's a good no, I feel comfortable paddling hard water in it, but um, it, John, it, I thought it was different. I thought it was very different.
2: Could it be because you were jumping right out of the party wrap into this thing that it felt Most such, certainly. A, such a – Yeah. Instead of going from one yeah. creek boat to another creek boat kind of thing?
3: Yeah, for sure, that probably a lot to do with it. I think that XL would be a six to ten boat. I'm looking it's at it, it, it pretty
2: fast. It looks pretty cool. I mean, my my thing just by looking at the picture is it looks like it's going to be a a weird surfacer, like when the whole boat's underwater, but maybe not.
1: There was no like I was trying to drop into holes like off balance or leaning upstream a little bit. There was rock stable in that situation. There was no weirdness. <sighs> Oof. So,
2: Blackman, there it's go. really,
1: it seems really narrow too, doesn't it? I mean, especially the tail of the boat seems super narrow. I felt From like the, it was. Pictures, and it then the knee look braces narrow. and the knee braces were like so high and close together, like you take your knees out of the braces and they're touching. I mean, they're right there, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And the outfitting, the.
0: Lewis you right. Like, no, I think the boat? was fine. This the same I, I boat that a
1: bit I will say the outfitting is, was terrible and they need to work in the outfitting for sure they did have uh, IR ratchet straps on it which was nice the back band was terrible and the thigh braces were We just like, two had big totally bruises waiting to
3: happen
2: Yeah if I could just experiences in this boat it was like if people could see the expressions with Lewis when John talking It's complete disgust <laughs>
1: Lewis has a look of complete disgust on his face it's as he's no, describing this.
2: It's basically like you have no idea what you're talking about. That's what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, no, disgust my ignorance. I think is what I'm I'm seeing, and just general disappointment.
2: <laughs> okay, try it for yourself. You know, send us a message. It's a boat worth trying. If you've paddled it, send us a message. Compare it to something because I don't know what to make of this.
3: I would put that boat in the the tuna. 9-R conversation of Boatsworth, considering.
1: Yeah, for sure. I'll Moving, on. For sure. I'm Moving not,
2: on. I'm not saying it's a bad boat at all. Don't get me wrong. Moving on. I haven't had a chance to battle right. the Narvana yet, but as soon as I do, I will let you guys know. I'll get an opinion on that. I don't know. For some reason, that one's looking pretty good to me. Lewis, you poo-poo on that one, but that one's looking good to me.
3: It just looks like so ugly to me, but <laughs> the boys are stoked and apparently the production ones better than the proto and we'll see i I believe it's genuine opinion i feel like i can discern between like (laughs) the i have to tell you this boat is good conversation and i'm actually stoked on this boat conversation i believe i can tell (laughs) (laughs) have you had? he hates (laughs) every boat
1: you thought just to clear something up you thought the outfitting in the the granada was good
3: i don't really remember i guess i liked that it was simple
1: I thought it'd be really uncomfortable. And you see the backband twist all around. Uh, Ian paddled with the backband facing the wrong way for half the trip before he realized what was going on.
3: Like a twist as he sat in the boat in the back. back My thing about boat outfitting is that there's almost... It takes some really bad outfitting to be like not salvageable, right? It's like you just take some foam and some contact cement and spend 45 minutes and the boat's good. Unless they've really really like messed something up.
2: All right. You guys, okay. Have you guys uh, been monitoring the uh, North Fork of the American inflow into Lake Clementine Gage? The
3: what? I've not.
2: The North Fork of the American River inflow oh. into Lake Clementine Gage. Is, All that, right, is that a favorite you. of yours? Yeah, it's one of my, it's one of my favorites. You Because know, it basically kicks off the overnighter season of California. When it hits about 1,200 Man. CFS, that's where you need to be, and it's right around 1,415 right now. So it just got cold down there. It did, but it didn't drop that much. I think it's on. I think it's uh I think sees I think starting Saturday. If I could go on vacation for the next 8 weeks, I would go to California <laughs> and put on the Royal Gorge on Saturday and I'd stay there until 7 weeks later when the Middle Kings runs.
1: You are on vacation for the next eight sec- weeks. What are you
2: talking about? I got a nanny to just tell for. your
1: tell your nanny tell your nanny you're heading out. Reason I bring your that up: you a couple hundred bucks for food, and you're out of there. Reason I. <laughs>
2: no feed feed the dog honey i'll be back (laughs) reason i bring that up is overnighter season is upon us a lot of our viewers have probably thought about viewers listeners have thought about doing an overnighter let's i'm gonna throw this to you lewis what's great about an overnighter what what are the things that you like about it
3: oh Um, man everything Um, not looking at your phone, not getting in the car, just waking up on the river, going to sleep on the river, just doing nothing but kayaking and being outside and just stripping away everything that's extraneous in life for a few days and just focusing on what you're doing and being outdoors. And it's the best thing in going.
2: It's so simple. I mean, it's very complex, but it's just so simple, the mentality you get. And, like,
3: man, when you go to California, everything in California is so far apart. And, like, the logistics are so complicated. And it's, like, doing overnighters is awesome because that's, like, three days that you're not thinking about, like, running shuttle, where you're going to next, what the water level is, whose car is going where. Like, do I need to go buy food? Like... Every time any time that you're not on the river in California to me is just like a massive pain in the ass. It's like the goal is just to like find an overnighter and like put on and not have to do any more of that stuff for like the maximum number
2: of possible days. It's true. What about you, John? It's What's the different? reason
3: it's the
1: reason even if you don't know even if you're whitewater paddling and don't know this, this is the reason why you're whitewater paddling is the overnighter. You That's know? A and very when, as soon good. as you do it you'll you'll realize that this is the whole reason why you put up with all the nonsense for all those years, because this is and then it's like your whitewater bar mitzvah, then you become a man or a woman. You know, yeah. I
3: had I remember the first time the first time I went to the Stikine, halfway down and just thinking to myself, if every single moment of kayaking in my life up until this point had been like pure tedium and just like suffering to get good enough to do this, it would have been worth it. Right.
2: Like
0: <laughs> Man, I'm gonna right, pull that sound by
2: and put it into the intro. <laughs>
1: Let's talk about our uh, let's talk about our gear picks and how to pack our boats for an overnighter. Let's say okay. Let's pick an easy one. Three ah. say three days, three days of camping, four days on the river. Man,
3: this depends where you are.
1: I don't know. Somewhat warm, not freezing cold. You know. All right. So warm. gear. I think. Yeah.
2: I think. Uh, could rain. S-
1: you could get rain. Let's just throw in rain because. All right, you know, makes it a little more interesting. Let's
2: let's let's just start with shelter. Are you a tent or a tarp guy? You got to have one of the two. You can't go out there with, even if you're in California no. with nothing. You know, you I like
1: to something. bring a two-person tent, split between two people. Something light, like an MSR Hubba Hubba, or one of those light camping tents. The Hubba Hubba is good because you can actually use it up as like a. You can set it up as like one of those mega mids if you want. Um, without the fly or without the. Um, you know, the main tent part. Uh, but the one person takes like the ground cloth and the fly, the other person takes a 10 and the poles, right? Pound and a quarter each. And then you're ready. If it's really shitty out, you can, you're, you're, you're set. Cause if it, if it pours rain and you're in a, in a mega mid or one of those tarp things, all your stuff's getting
2: wet. You're talking about like little bivy sacks or whatever. Bivy sacks are worthless. I'll agree with that. i like Bivy
1: Sacks are just a complete, absolute waste of money <laughs> on a kayaking trip. There's a there's yeah. a, a illusion out there you can bring a bivy sack and you're gonna be yeah. you're gonna remain dry if it starts raining and that's that's a falsehood. Yeah, when I see people
2: with <laughs> bivy sacks, all, a lot of times I I'm just I start questioning whether they need to be on the river with me that day.
1: Well, clearly they've never slept in bivy sack in the rain because they would be making that mistake. Exactly.
2: Twice. <laughs> they would
3: definitely know about oh, man. <laughs> You disagree, Lewis. Uh, here we go, Lewis. I mean, I definitely have nowhere near the uh, illustrious expedition paddling career that the two of you had that I, I don't know. I guess I, my feeling is that there's no perfect answer. For a long time, I thought that you were going to like find the ultimate sleeping system for overnighters, and it just totally depends where you're going and what you're doing. I just
1: described but, it. I don't know what you're, what, you're, I, I what, actually, what you're looking for. I don't think I've ever had
3: a
2: tent. You've never yes. brought a tent? I've never owned a tent. Oh, man, dude, uh, a tent. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to differ from The Only from John time here. I had a tent. Only time Grace, a you're t- with me on this one, right? I'm with you on this one, but.
1: Unless you know it's going to be dry. Unless you're going to like.
2: No, hang on, someplace hang where you know
1: you're not going to see rain for seven days. I, I tell I'm,
3: you, my, my Cali system is I have like a very, very small tarp that I bring, but most of the time you're pretty much counting on it not raining. And the tarp is just like. You know, worst case scenario. I bring that a lot. I've slept under that little tarp. Like, it's like a six by eight with a bivy sack before. Like, just in combination in absolutely pouring rain and been, like, really happy.
1: Why not bring a tent?
3: If you yeah, the, that a tarp, like you're going to bring Weight-wise,
1: you're right at the tent weight.
3: Well, to me, then, my I think the next step up from that is the, uh, the Mega Mid. And the Mega Mid for two people is, like, that is, like, Really light and really weatherproof. All right, let me
2: break this one down for you. And so, I wouldn't
3: go beyond that unless there were bugs.
2: So I have done the share a tent before. I've done the share a tent. Daniel and I shared a tent a lot on a lot of trips. Um, but this is why you want the tent. And I prefer just a single person tent because I like to read at night or whatever, and you don't want to keep somebody up next year or whatnot. But the ten, it doesn't matter what you have to deal with during the day if you can be not have bugs biting your forehead if you don't have water dripping on you at night if your dry bag is if your sleeping bag is dry and whatever it doesn't matter what you got to deal with for that 10 hours struggling dealing with the bush water's coming up on you shit hits the fan somebody mm-hmm. swims you gotta hike you get in a weird portage whatever happens as long as you can get like a comfortable night's sleep right. bring it on. You can deal with whatever the next day. When, you, when your is like stuff, a huge thing. when your stuff, I totally agree with that. When your stuff yeah. starts getting wet, and then you yeah. had to deal all day long, and you know you got four more days on the river, and it's raining, and you yeah. know it's going to rain every single day, and your shit is soaking ass wet. It sucks. It's you can't yeah, ever chill that. out and recharge, and then it's unsafe, and then just the shit goes down. No.
3: And on that, on a similar note, I used to always use just like the shittiest, lightest three-quarter length sleeping pad, and <laughs> in my old age, have moved up to one of those like really nice new Thermarest New Airs, like Jack like, plastic welding, not <laughs> <laughs> quite like that. Like you <laughs> know those like new, nice, like like big Thermarests, like the Neo yeah. Airs. Man, like that is weight worth bringing. Like yeah, in terms of, just I can like still, bu- your- I
1: can still bust out the three-quarter length
3: thermal rest. I mean, My- if you can. Like, you'll be happier. If you do. I'm with,
2: I'm with Lewis on this one. My golden nugget to anybody who wants to go on an expedition is make sure you can get a solid eight hours sleep comfortably. And your sleep- n-
1: and your sleeping bag is dry.
2: And your all Even your it stuff is dry. requires a separate dry
1: bag for your sleeping bag and your shitty stove floats. Make sure that's dry.
2: Yeah. Make sure that you can just like. Hell is breaking loose all around you, and you're stuck above the unportageable, unnavigable, whatever, and your friend, everything's breaking down. As long as you can just go to sleep and wake up, it's good. But if you can't do that, and I've been in that situation, you don't do it twice. (laughs) Yeah. So that's my golden tip. What else? What other gear we got?
1: Uh, I bring a cook stove. I bring my MSR, <laughs> a full MSR cook stove. Even <clears throat> you can always make a fire. You know, it can't hurt.
3: Yeah, uh, that depends bring, too. To me, it's like if you're going to I bring, California, I feel like you can go without a stove.
1: Yeah, California is like glamping, though. I, I'm starting to think oh, it's yeah. not really like. Like, because I'm to like, like
3: thinking I think DC would be a lot more your speed. World California is like in California, you feel like. God made the world for you to be happy in as a guy here. When you go to BC, you feel like your life may serve no higher purpose than to feed a hungry bear.
0: I keep, Very well I keep
3: said. Going, My mind
1: keeps going back to Borneo. We spent I spent almost a month crossing Borneo, where it rained like someone was dumping a bucket of water on your head all the time. We were covered with leeches. It was 100 degrees. There was no sleep. We were soaking wet, covered with sores waiting to get like schistosomiasis or some horrible disease. This went on for weeks, weeks and weeks and weeks. <laughs> there was no staying dry. Everything was rotten. <laughs> it's, it's a little different in California. Every day was like a leech check. We had to bend over and look at your buddy's private parts
2: because <laughs>
1: they were everywhere. <laughs> ah, this is great because all like my we, sound
2: bites for the intro are going to come out of this show. I don't have to look at this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like to bring a stove. I Sometimes I don't in California, yeah. but I like to bring a stove.
1: Uh, I bring a stove because it's easy. It's a no brainer. You can start, you know, it's a guaranteed thing. It, it, it cuts down cooking time, you know, by quite a bit. I bring one stainless steel coffee pot that I empty out to boil water in and put the innards back in again. One of those percolator things. Uh, how about dinners? Freeze dried
2: dinners? Or do you guys pack, like, make up a whole thing? No, I, I don't ever take freeze dried stuff. I just. Yeah, I me bring either. food, and I always I always bring a big thing, you know, some salami or whatever. And but I'll bring like some some hard containers with like tomatoes, and all, you know, all sorts of fresh food, eggs. You know. What's the longest really, like, you've I'm ever lived days. out of a
1: kayak for? Um, fourteen days. Fourteen days without resupply. Mm-hmm. Where was that? In The Grand Canyon. But you were with, you had raft support or just in kayaks? Just kayaks. What what kayaks were you in?
2: Um, Stinger XP's. That's pretty good. What was the temperature like? It was the winter. It was cold. But, I mean, it was warm. It was fine. The, the beauty of that trip is is that you don't ever have to portage your kayak. And so that really changes the dynamic of what you're packing. If you're getting into some place that you got to do a bunch of portages, you're not going to take the things that I took on that trip down the Grand Canyon. Because – the worst I have to do is pull my boat on the beach. You know, I can do a Z drag if I need to.
1: Right. Right. <laughs> how about you, Geltman? Open. I
3: think seven. Where was that? Uh, also the grand. That's a quick trip.
2: Yeah. And then how yeah, about, let's, let's be fast? what else do we bring in? How do we, how do we pack our boats? Well, hang on. One more thing that I think that you, that is really good to bring is if you like coffee and that kind of thing in the morning, I have got one of these uh, – it's like a little coffee mug with a plunger in the top.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I don't know what brand it is. I think I may have bought it from Starbucks or something. But that's super sweet. Just pour a little coffee in there, plunge it down. You're ready to rock. I got
3: this little like MRS, MSR like filter cone thing you kind of do a little like pour over with it's pretty good
2: but the little do you have to put a little filter in it or
3: no it's just like super fine mesh and mm-hmm. it kind of like sits in the water like i feel like the coffee ends up kind of like a halfway between a pour over and a french press but it's pretty passable
2: what about what I, i'm a staunch supporter of watershed dry bags going back to my statement of so there's some things you just don't want to get wet no matter what
1: yeah they're know, yeah, so they're hard to close and they're not they don't pack down that well
2: they don't pack
3: very well, they, but that's that's the other that like, negative. That anchor point that like ties the ears down needs to be down at the end of the bag. It's like it's in the wrong place. Like they're sticky, so they don't slide in and out of your boat very well. They're heavy, but like they're bomber and they're dry, and like that is you cannot say that about any other options.
1: Yeah, I bring a stove float, but I put my sleeping bag in a separate waterproof bag. And everything else can... And my clothes usually go in a separate waterproof bag, too. Like my off-river
3: clothes. Probably one, have a, maybe... What's that? you still have the old stowflets with the wands?
1: Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> they still sell those. I bought a pair of those not
3: too long ago. All right. See what we're talking about, Grace? Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about.
1: <laughs> yeah. But they fit. I mean, you can get a lot of stuff in there, those things, and they fit down at the end of your boat,
0: you know?
2: Um, so how about... How about, here's, here's a tip on, how about breakdown paddles? How many, let's say you got a group of four. How many breakdown paddles do you bring? Depends on the river. Yeah. I usually say Long. like one breakdown per, per two people. But this is something that I've ran into before is don't separate. If you're a breakdown guy, offer some other piece of gear for somebody else to take other than half of the breakdown. Because if you lose half of a breakdown, it's like not having a breakdown at all. So don't separate. I've been with groups before. Where people are like, oh, let's separate the breakdown. And then somebody swims, loses their boat, or something epic happens. And then they break their paddle, and you're stuck with a half of a paddle. Or you break your paddle, you're way upstream in a canyon. And you're like, oh, I got half of the paddle. And homeboy with the other half is like down at the bottom of the canyon. So don't split your paddle. All right. That's it. That's a little tidbit I'll bring
1: it into. Now, do, you guys, do you guys try and put gear in front of the boat, in front of the bulkhead? Always. Yeah, I'm a big believer in that.
3: I like it, but it's just such a pain in modern boats to get the bulkhead out that I rarely do it anymore. You have to Usually, sort of make if it's some like,
1: design modifications to make that possible.
3: If it's like Middle Kings or Upper Cherry and I have a backpack, I'll when I get to the put-in, I'll pull it out and put put my backpack in front of the bulkhead like something where I'm not going to have to take my bulkhead out of my boat every day
2: and do you move your seat forward a little bit to tweak for that added weight in the back Lewis? or how do you balance that always yeah
3: yeah. I'm in my seat like three quarters of an inch forward probably
2: yeah that's kind of that's kind of my style. and the bulkhead forward one notch too otherwise you're just moving the seat under your ass yeah I can't tell you how many people I've been on an overnighter with it's their first overnighter that I watch him on day one and I'm like, ah, when we get to camp, we're going to adjust that boat just a little bit. That's a big one.
3: I love, I love, that's something I like about overriders a lot is just watching everybody else's operation and you just like pick up little things from everybody over time, you know, it's like.
1: Do you empty your boat oh. to run a big rapid or are you a purist? Do you keep the gear in?
2: No, I don't ever empty my boat.
1: Never take Never. gear out of the boat to run
2: a rapid. You know, if there was like a, maybe a big canyon and I was going to camp at the bottom of it, I may carry my stuff around to camp and then run it or something like that. But
1: I think I, think I for some reason I think I've taken gear on my boat to run a rap, but I can't remember exactly where.
3: Um, I
0: don't
3: know. it probably made more of a difference like with, back when you guys were doing those trips with really long boats. You know, like I feel like short boats having gear in the boat affects it way less than.
1: I mean I was not come on I I'm not, I'm not 100.
3: <laughs> I mean you like had like stout expeditions and like tornados and white bears and stuff like that. We did some of those yeah. <laughs> 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 I, bu-
1: I built I built the boat I built the boat that we crossed uh Baffin it. It was a white bear. Remember that boat? The white bear? Oh yeah. A vacuum bag foam core 28 pounds boat. Uh,
3: I did a Clendenning trip a few years ago. My boat was broken, so I brought my tornado, and like I was just like blown away by how much harder that boat was to battle with gear in it. Like a regular <laughs> boat, you put gear in it, and it just like it's, yeah. it makes a difference, but it's not like night yeah. and day. And like you got yeah. in that Tornado loaded for three days, and it was like I wanted, you know, like have a hook and ladder truck has like the guy who sits in the back. helps steer. <laughs> I, I needed that.
1: <laughs> well, the tornado is like a canoe. I mean, you can easily put like a month's worth of gear on that, and it gets yourself to like a hundred eighty pound boat in no time. I mean, it just eats gear. That's it's how my, you could go below deck and make a cocktail.
2: That's how my stinger <laughs> stinger XP wasn't a great thing. It was just ridiculous. I mean,
1: because the tornado, you could pull the bulkhead right out and just load. It. You could put you can put almost as much gear in the in front of the bulkhead as behind in those things. It's just it's endless.
3: Yeah, that's a good piece of advice for people on their first overnighters. is don't let don't think that the constraint is space. If you're right. using yeah the available space, like you've gone way, way, way too far already.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. I took my kids on their first overnighter a couple of weekends ago, and I was like, they allowed to bring like one. Change of clothes. They are allowed to have like one fork, one cup. <laughs> we used to do, I would tell a valid mill story again. And then, uh, <laughs> and then, we, and then we have we to move to on. The hardcore, we used to do the hardcore overnight uh, trip with Andy Bridge where you go out to that, that mosquito ridden island in the middle of the Potomac. <laughs> And we would – the kids were allowed – we'd give them all the food for the entire weekend on Friday. You know what I mean? And they're allowed to bring like one fork, one cup, a blanket, and a sleeping bag or whatever. And probably 25 to 30 percent of the kids would eat almost all of their food Friday night (laughs) and then have nothing to eat for the remaining two days.
3: (laughs) We did it like that. And it was, was this island <laughs> Overlook goes out to you now at Great Falls, and it was like, and yeah. been washed out at the time. So, like, they are paddling, And I can still go out there and point out the rock that I slept on that day. <laughs> <laughs> like, we weren't allowed to have sleeping bags. We weren't allowed right. to have pads. You just had a one-way. Yeah. So we were just yeah, out yeah. there on the
2: you know? Well, now well, you're ready stuff. for an overnighter. If you have any questions about overnighters, give us, send us a message. Uh, it is overnighter season. It's happening right now. So, so
1: if okay, one last question. If you're going to do a, a class four or five overnighter, three or four days, what kind of? What's your what's your perfect boat right now? What's the ideal boat?
2: Gus. <laughs> really?
1: I want to say Hawk. Go for it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um. You know, I don't know. Just a, the biggest the biggest nine-foot creek boat you can, you can find. Any, you can pick any boat you
1: want. What are you going to take?
2: Party brat. <laughs> Party brat with a lap bag. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know.
3: Mike, Geltman? Just, uh, whatever. I mean, I feel like I always pick my boat with it in mind that i want to be able to paddle it with gear in it so like i'm, I'm happy thanks, with thanks guys that's been a great <laughs> i mean my great. point is you don't need a special boat that's,
1: that's i know but i'm just saying well. for the sake of conversation what would you take right now
3: tuna tuna
1: all right was that that hard thank you grace what would you take <laughs> tuna tuna all right it, 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 it you asking me what I'm going to take? Is that what you guys are
2: looking yeah. at? No, we yeah. don't care. White Bear? We got to move on. <laughs> White Bear. Yeah, Let we'll us leave it yeah, thanks. <laughs> So we're over, we're over our time. To- I was going to keep this thing. We're over time. We're out of time. But we, were, we got a ladies show coming up. We've got some good questions and comments for our ladies panel that we're going to do in the next coming weeks. Yeah, keep them coming. So, yeah. Yeah. These are, these are definitely good. There's all kinds. There's some good ones in there. But one of them stood out as was peeing in the, in the funnel. Right. You guys got any advice for that? Or should we wait? I have tremendous, I've given this, this exact
1: issue a tremendous amount of thought. And? Because uh, we've made a women's dry suit before. And so, uh, do oh, I'll you, tell you. You do want you to sell you? the
2: funnel with it, or how does it work?
1: Well, we won't be able to pick their own funnel because people are actually pretty particular about the funnels, it turns out. Okay. Okay. The issue with the drop zip, right, is that these zippers are not curved, they're, they're rectangular. Right, And so to sew in a big, long, rectangular rectangular zipper into the butt of a suit requires some pretty crafty pattern-making. And essentially, it makes a very big, loose suit, at least bigger than we would want. Um, And big, empty, dry suits are hard to heat. And we figured if you put a relief zip in the front of it, you could really make a much more tailored suit. Um, That was our pattern-making view on it. We also solicited a bunch of hardcore women kayakers who felt the same way uh and you know performance aside they just didn't feel like the the we the the she we was that big of a deal but i think also we're very conscious that it's a deal breaker for at least half the consumers out there you know
2: i can see that i don't have much any input on that one but uh, we'll let our ladies panel dive into that yes
1: i'm gonna i'm gonna hand i'm gonna hand it off to them at
2: this point All right, guys. Favorite segment of the show: rants and raves. I'm gonna. You want me? I'll kick us off here with a with a rave. Pisgah National Forest. Pisgah National Forest is it's a huge forest here in western North Carolina. There is all kinds of incredible kayaking, rock climbing, mountain biking, hiking. It is the best place in the. I don't want to say that. It's an incredible place to recreate. Pisgah National Forest, you can always find something to do there. We're working on forest planning there right now.
3: Kevin Colburn is leading the charge. We're going to make sure it stays that way.
2: There you go. It's killer. And to you guys.
0: Chirp chirp. Chirp. chirp chirp.
2: Crickets.
3: Man, I got nothing. I don't know. I'm going I I'm gonna real fired up about the North Fork race this weekend. I'm uh not racing in deference to my shoulder and old age, but I'm pretty fired up to go over and watch these boys try and race Jake's at 6,000 CFS or whatever it's going to be this weekend. It's going to be how far, how far truly next level. Uh, maybe seven hours? Maybe six?
1: That's like uh, in the West Coast, that's like a drive around the corner. Everything's that's- six hours away. I think driving units in the West Coast are measured in three hour blocks. <laughs> Like three hours, one driving unit and and if you lived in the West
3: Coast. It's like, yeah, it's about the same as it is to Seattle. But instead of sitting in traffic on I-5, you just just cruise across eastern Oregon and before you know you're there. Mr. Welch, do you have a rant
2: or rave to close this down with? Uh,
1: I have a rant, but I don't know if it really... Something's been eating at me all week, and I don't know if it's anyone's gonna appreciate it out there. Our you know, we've talked about this before, but our industry left the outdoor retailer trade show and you know as a result IR is not going and a bunch of the manufacturers aren't going. Basically, you know, I think Paddle Sports didn't for a couple of odd reasons, didn't want to fit in with the outdoor retailer show schedule anymore, so they left and now we're just adrift. Uh, and we're becoming isolationists and, I, and uh, I call it prexit, paddle sports retailer exit from the outdoor <laughs> retail show is exactly what it is. <laughs> uh, and it's just been bugging me. I, I feel like it's such a step in the wrong direction.
2: Um, I don't know. Well, I'll tell you what, and this is something to think about is, you know, um, what's the solution? You know? Go
1: back to OR. Simple. Go back to or I, it was driven by retailers. A lot of retailers didn't like the show moving to an earlier date, which is a lot more in line with the way manufacturers order stuff. Um, I mean, truth is, is you know, IR ordered 2018 goods last January. I mean, that's when we ordered them. Um, and retailers say, well, we can't have a show in June because we don't know what we're going to sell yet. You know, for 2018, we haven't gone to the summer yet. Well, we didn't know what we we're going to sell either when we ordered the stuff three or four months earlier um so retail has pushed the show to September till after the the summer's over when they have a better idea of what they're going to need but by then manufacturers have ordered everything it's all done and that's the whole reason why they moved to the show to an earlier date to begin with is for that exact reasons for retailers and manufacturers to be in sync with each other in terms of the supply chain but paddle sports didn't want to do that you know and so the it's putting 100% of the burden on buying and in, in you know, 100 percent of the risk on buying and ordering and speculating all this gear on the manufacturer, which is not what retailers need to do doing right now. That's just with all the threat they have for internet competition, they need to be more involved with the
3: with the inventory not less. Um,
2: I have so. I have some yeah, it seems to me
3: like like paddle sports leaving outdoor retailer. I mean it just seems so like totally indefensible to me. It's like yeah, like retail really is already it, shrinking. Yeah. It's like there's so, what remains, it seems like there are so many shops that would probably be on the fence about whether to stock paddling stuff at all, and if yep. you have to get a whole separate trade show in order to facilitate that, it's like, that's just going to make it an easy decision not to do it.
1: I mean, not only that, I'm, I'm starting to hear from all our suppliers who go to the show, you know what I mean? They're asking, well, <clears throat> have we set an appointment? I'm like, I, we're not going this year. And so it makes us look like we're headed in the direction of like windsurfing, like what, you know, so the sport's getting marginalized, you know? Um and we had a larger voice as part of the larger, you know, the retail environment. You know, we, we had, we were part of a, a bigger entity, but I don't know. Time will tell. When they put me in charge, when they put me in charge, I'm going to run things differently. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, boys. That's a, that's a wrap. Uh, that's, that's the end of the soundbite show because there were some good ones. Around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> anyway. All right. Very good. Thanks for listening. When's, wait, wait. When's the When's the Lady Show? When's the, is that next week or the week after?
2: Um, we got to talk to Miss Kara Weld about that because it won't be next week. I think it's going to be the week after. All right. Okay. So we'll you'll have to hear us banter. We expect a very good North Fork Championship report along with photos and an essay, Lewis. So, mm.
0: uh, yeah,
2: there we go. All right. Good luck to all the racers. See you guys.
0: All right bye Later.